So for these four Advent Sundays, we're going to focus on the four names that Isaiah gives to this coming Messiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But if you take just a step back uh, from, this, from, uh, from these two verses as a whole and kind of uh, forget about some of the Christmas associations we have with these words, you'll see that this message of Isaiah is essentially a political message. Isaiah is talking about a king, a kingdom. He's talking about government and what all of this will be like. So this is politics. And if you're anything like me, when anyone mentions politics, you know, red flags start going up. You think, what in the world is this guy about to say? So to put your mind at ease and also to help focus on the passage, I'm going to jump right to the end of the sermon and give you the main point of what, we, uh, what we're going to look at today. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the king. The babe in the manger is the king of all creation. Whatever governments are instituted among men, they all exist within a monarchy. And the monarch's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And the Bible places no limitation or qualification on his rule. He is king over everyone, in every place, and for all time. Every president, congressman, every governor, every general, they answer to him right now. And we also answer to him right now as well. And Isaiah's announcement of this coming king is primarily a comfort to us because we're his people. It's an encouragement for believers to be faithful right now where we're at and to wait for God to steer history in the direction that he intends. So with those broad strokes, uh, here's an outline of what we're going to look at today. It's going to be four basic points. Uh, The first point, we want to look at the background, uh, the historical setting that Isaiah is speaking to and uh, some of those those immediate events. Second, we want to focus on one of the king's four titles and that is Wonderful Counselor. And third, we want to see how this is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And then last, we want to talk about how this applies to us today. How do we live and think today because of this? But before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Please bow with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious treasure of your word. Give me wisdom to handle it rightly and give us all grace to hear it and to believe it and to obey it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. At the time Isaiah lived, which is 700 BC, the nation of Israel was divided into two parts. There was the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and then a southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And they had been divided for about 300 years. The northern kingdom of Israel had a history of wicked kings. The king you would think of immediately would be King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who brought in foreign idols, pagan immorality. The southern kingdom had more of a mixed record. They had a record of some good kings and some bad kings, some kings that were faithful to the Lord and others that were not. In Isaiah's time, at the beginning of his ministry, they had had a series of kings who were faithful to the Lord, but their newest king, King Ahaz, was not. The Bible says that King Ahaz followed after the pattern of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. He brought in idols from the surrounding nations and idols of the worst sort. It says in the Bible that King Ahaz even offered his own son as a child sacrifice to one of these idols. This was also a time of prosperity and political peace. But the nation's prosperity actually went hand-in-hand with their idolatry. They aligned themselves with various foreign powers in trade, which made them wealthy, but they also aligned themselves in worship, which made them idolaters. But that prosperity was being threatened because of a growing political unrest. Israel, the northern kingdom, had recently made a pact with Syria, its neighbor. And uh, there's a map here. You can see it on the map. 
So you can see there to the south, you see uh, Judah and its capital of Jerusalem. And then just above that is the northern kingdom of Israel. And then its immediate neighbor, Syria. Those are the three local kingdoms. But the kind of obvious thing from the map and the obvious thing to uh, Israel and Judah at the time was that the big power uh, of the day, the real political threat and concern was to the north. It was Assyria. Assyria was a, a sprawling, uh, already at that time of 745 B.C., which would have been the beginning of Isaiah's ministry and also the beginning of Ahaz's reign. Assyria was that region in dark blue. But they were on the advance. They were aggressive. They had an advanced technological war machine, and they were on the move. And within 75 years, Assyria would spread all the way to that gray region. So this was the concern. So with that background... Uh, and we'll just leave the map up here for the, a little bit. Let's turn uh, back to your Bibles in Isaiah. We're going to flip back two chapters and go to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to take, uh, to see the context of Isaiah's prophecy, we're going to hop, skip, and jump through a couple chapters and just uh, see a, a smattering of verses to see what's going on at the time. And we're going to begin with chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is a, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So King Ahaz in Judah is hard-pressed. He's outmatched by the combined forces of Israel and Syria. And the, the, uh, the details of the cause of this conflict are, actually, are not stated, but the people are shaking with fear, and rightly so. But into that tense situation, God sends the prophet Isaiah with a message of encouragement. Let's jump to verse 4. God says to Isaiah, And say to him, that is King Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass." So Ahaz has a clear promise from God. Israel and Syria will not prevail against him. And also, he has a clear direction from God about how he should handle himself. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't fear. And you would think this is perfect, right? I have this guarantee from God. I can be as careful and as quiet as you want because I know that it's all going to work out in my favor. Now we have to take a a bigger jump. Jump to chapter 8, verse 3. Again, this is Isaiah. It says, And I, that is Isaiah, went to the prophetess, that is Isaiah's wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a mouthful. Uh, What a name. Uh, The name means, The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, And the spoil of Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. 
So Isaiah has a newborn son, and God uses the occasion and a special name to announce more clearly what will happen. Syria and Israel, those threats from the north, will be defeated just as God has promised, and God is going to use Assyria to do it. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Actually, we're going to stop right there. There's a couple things that are already a little, that need a little explanation. The waters of Shiloh, this would be a natural water supply in Jerusalem. And as we know, Rezin is the king of Syria and the son of Remaliah, that's the king of Judah. But there's two things in the verse here that are a little hard to understand, maybe not immediately obvious. It says that Judah refused the waters of Shiloh. This is basically a metaphor for Judah refusing to trust in God's provision. And then it says that Judah was rejoicing over Syria and Israel, maybe some type of gloating. It's kind of hard to figure out what's going on in this verse alone, but fortunately the Bible has a parallel passage. It's in 2 Kings 16. We don't have time to turn there, but I will summarize it for you. It gives a, a parallel account of this exact event, and it says that when King Ahaz of Judah hears that Israel and Syria are threatening, he sends messengers to get help. But sadly, he sends them to Assyria. And to pay for the help, Ahaz goes into the temple and strips off the silver and gold. He also takes it from his palace and gives it to the king of Assyria as payment. And Ahaz gets his help. The Bible records that Tiglath-Pileser, this would be one of the kings of Assyria, marches up. If you can bring up the, the picture there, you can see there's Tiglath-Pileser. Everyone would have known who this guy was and his war machine, his army on the march. It was marching through the land at the time. So uh, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he mar- at Ahaz's request, marches right up to Damascus, the capital of Syria, and he destroys it, and he kills the king. And after that, Ahaz takes his own journey up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser. And while he's there enjoying his time, he's so impressed with the Assyrian altars that are built there, the Bible says he sends directions back to the priest in Jerusalem and says, hey, build me an altar in Jerusalem in the temple of God just like the Assyrians have. So the king of Judah and much of Judah along with him, they're completely rejecting God. They aren't looking to God for help. They don't believe his words. And even when the words are all to their own advantage, they would rather get Assyria's help and believe Assyria's promises and worship Assyria's gods. Let's go, let's, uh, let's go back to verse 6 and read a little further. Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread, outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. We're going to stop there. So God is bringing up Assyria against Israel and, and Syria, as he promised, but it will not stop there. God is going to bring Assyria into Judah as well. Like the spring floods that overflow the Euphrates River, His war machine is going to flow all the way up to Jerusalem, right up to the neck. God is using Assyria, a godless nation, to discipline his people for their idolatry. And notice who's in charge. 
Who's calling the shots of world history? God is doing it. God's bringing up Assyria. Judah may feel like a pawn in the hands of these world powers, but it's actually Assyria that is a pawn in God's hands. And this is true today too. Do you see any political power or cultural trend that causes you to worry? God is directing it. God isn't the cause of evil, but he takes man's evil intent, the worst of the worst, and he directs it where he wants and accomplishes his good through it. God works the greatest good out of the worst evil all the time. And Ahaz, King Ahaz doesn't believe this. But what about those in Judah, uh, those who are still faithful, like Isaiah himself, or anyone hearing Isaiah's message and does believe it? What do they think? Let's press on a little further here. Uh, into, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, that is to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Isaiah is told to fear God and not man. He's to resist the allure of conspiracy theories. I don't know what is it in our human nature that, get, that makes us want to believe conspiracy theories, but God tells us to not bother with them. Whatever rumor you hear about political dealings, it's of little importance because you already have a direct line into what's going on. God is directing world history. You should pay full attention to him, himself, him instead. Let's jump to verse 16 now. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So God's people need to wait. They have God's word. They need to keep believing it and wait for God to act. And God's first act is going to be devastation, but that will not be his final act. We take one more jump now to the end of chapter 8. To verse 22. It says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the chapter ends with the gloom of anguish. Any attempt to look to the earth, to look for any worldly solution to your problems, ends in distress and darkness. And that's because Israel's chief problem is idolatry. And God, they've turned away from God, and God is giving them over to their desires. So this is the background of Isaiah's prophecy. It's very dark, but in that darkness, we're able to see a contrast. We're now able to see what God will do. So now we go to chapter 9, starting with verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are two tribes in the northern part of Israel that were wiped out by Assyria. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So as dark as this gloom of anguish is, God is saying that a dazzling light will break out. It'll be in some latter time, but Isaiah sees it so vividly, he actually uses, he he talks about the future event with past tense verbs. So he's looking into the future beyond the invasion of Assyria to a future deliverance from God. Let's go to verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So it's going to be a restoration of abundance and joy and harvest and spoil. Israel is going to be the victors. But how is God going to do this? Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is going to crush Israel's enemies, just like he defeated the Midianites of Gideon's day. And any instruments of slavery and burden are going to be destroyed. But how is God going to do this? We keep going. Next verse, verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior, every in, in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I don't know if you like poetry or not, but this is really vivid stuff, right? It's just uh, full of imagery. God's going to devastate their armies. He's going to take away not only their weapons, but even their boots and their clothes. The Assyrian army was known for its war technology, but God's going to burn it all up. It's going to be a complete victory by God. And how is God going to do this? And now we get to our passage, and I hope we can see it in context now. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Can you see the contrast right there in those first words? God's great plan to rescue his people is to send a baby boy. And and through him to deal an overwhelming defeat on all of Israel's enemies. God will send the Assyrian army for discipline, but then God will send a child to save his people. Let's, uh, let's keep reading. For two, back up to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this child will be a king. The government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be a king in David's lineage, fulfilling the promise that David's throne would be eternal. But this will not just be another king and another victory, but it's going to be an ultimate victory and an ultimate king. And his kingdom will not be limited to just Jerusalem. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will grow and encompass all the nations of the world. This is God's eternal rule over creation, Perfect justice, perfect righteousness brought to fruition. So to describe this coming king more fully, Isaiah gives him four names. And we're going to study these four names over the next four Advent Sundays. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But if you have a King James Bible or a New King James, you'll see that there's five names there. There's an extra comma, and the comma is between Wonderful and Counselor. And if you ever listened to Handel's Messiah... Uh, you'll know that Handel and uh, whoever was uh, writing uh, the, his librettist was using the King James because there's that big pause between wonderful and counselor, right? You maybe got the tune running through your head right now and there's a comma there. But uh, we're going to consider the first name with no comma, uh, just wonderful counselor. I don't know a, a jot of Hebrew myself, but the commentators I read made a, a really simple argument from it, and I think uh, one we can all uh, appreciate. It's an argument for four names based on the symmetry of the words. Uh, if you translate everlasting father in a more literal way, father of eternity, there's actually a poetic uh, pattern of nouns and adjectives there. It's an A-B-A-B-B-A-B-A pattern. And it reads, wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, prince of peace. So it's a poetic symmetry there. Uh, the other thing about these words, wonderful counselor, 
are the words themselves. These are actually words that are very common to us. I'll bet most of you will use one or both of these words this week, right? Uh, but we use them in a, a slightly different way than Isaiah is using them here, and this is completely normal with language. Every word has a range of meaning, and the range has a way of shifting over time. Um, so in our everyday usage, how are you going to use the word counselor? Uh, you might think of it as uh, a psychologist, right? Or maybe um, uh, just a life coach, or maybe someone at school that's giving you guidance, guidance counselor. Uh, how about the word wonderful? This is even more common, right? You're going to use it. You're going to use it today, right? How was dinner? It was wonderful. Um, how was that movie? It was wonderful. So if we're not careful, uh, our knee-jerk reaction is to put those two together and see wonderful counselor as a really great psychologist. Or uh, uh, some, maybe someone who has just great insight into our uh, personal um, feelings and our personal uh, uh, life and can give us good advice. But we need to look at the Bible and see how the Bible uses these words. And we'll start with the word counselor. In the, word, in the Old Testament, the word counselor very often refers to a political office. It's an official position of advisor to a king. It's a post characterized by wisdom and insight into how to run the affairs of state. You could think of Joseph, who was an advisor to Pharaoh and then was put in charge of actually executing this. I, I picked one uh, passage from Daniel. There's a, there's a whole bunch of passages that use the word counselor. Here's one from Daniel. It says, Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So when we read the word counselor, we should think of an official government position. You, in, our, in our present day, you may think of someone like the Secretary of the Treasury, someone who has experience uh, and um, uh, skill in finance, and then is put in charge of running that branch of the government. So what does this name counselor tell us about who this promised king will be? He will be a king who is wise. He has no need of advisors to tell him what to do because he himself knows what to do. The Greek philosopher Plato had exactly this type of ruler in mind when he wrote his great work of political philosophy, The Republic. He saw the ideal of a ruler or a king who is wise. Plato wrote, Until political power and philosophy entirely coincide, cities will have no rest from evils. So it's a universal longing that the rulers, the whoever has power, is wise. And they, know, they have power, but they have power to do good and they know exactly what that good is to do. Plato has, in his Republic, goes into a long ex a discussion of how to raise up a man like this. But he knew nothing of a transcendent God who would stoop into time and history and provide a ruler like this for us. So what kind of counselor will he be? Isaiah says he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So let's look at the word wonderful. I picked two verses here. The first one is from the Psalms. In Psalm 139, a verse we're very familiar with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So wonderful means full of wonder. How can it be? I can't comprehend it. It's something that's beyond us. Next one from Isaiah, later on in, in uh, his book, it says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So the Bible's consistent in its use of the word wonderful. It's a marvel. It's something miraculous or even supernatural. It's something truly amazing. 
Now let's put those two words together. Now we see who this promised king will be. He will be amazingly wise. He will have knowledge and insight beyond our ability to grasp. We will stare at him and be filled with wonder at his wisdom. So our first point was to look at the historical background. Second, we looked at the words wonderful counselor. Now we need to zoom ahead, 700-year jump, and look at how this is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And as Christians, we are convinced that Jesus does fulfill these words. He is the promised king. And it's not just this one passage in Isaiah that convinces us, but many others. Prophecies of the exact year of Jesus' birth or the city of his birth, uh, what his teaching would be, his ministry, his crucifixion according to the Scriptures, and his resurrection also according to the Scriptures. And we can't go into all that. We need to focus on just our passage from Isaiah. But it turns out that at the very beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry, Jesus speaks directly to Isaiah chapter 9. So if you could bring up, uh, this is from the book of Matthew chapter 4. And it reads, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9. And Matthew, who was taught by Jesus, is saying that Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus didn't start his ministry in Jerusalem, which is the hub of Judaism. He started in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee, about 100 miles to the north. And in that place, there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles living on the outskirts of Jewish territory. And into that land, a great light dawned. And look at the direct quote from Jesus, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We should hear this as Isaiah's prophecy as well. There is no such thing as a kingdom without a king. So Jesus is directly announcing the kingdom and indirectly announcing that he is the promised king. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is continually talking about the kingdom of God. He's directly and indirectly pointing to himself as the promised king. And he repeatedly demonstrates his wisdom as he teaches us the meaning of the law or he confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees or he tells parables that reveal to us the nature of the kingdom of God. But if Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God is a prominent feature of the Gospels, another equally prominent feature of the Gospels is that the disciples didn't get it. They were uh, were continually confused about it. They heard Jesus' words, they knew the Old Testament prophecies, but they couldn't see how it was going to all work out. And we have stories of them, uh, like jockeying for seats at the right and left hand of Jesus' throne. It's a bit like uh, uh, scrambling for seats in a cabinet position before Inauguration Day. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're still confused. In Acts chapter 1, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But in all these cases, Jesus doesn't correct their desire for the kingdom. Their basic expectation is right. Jesus is the king. He's going to set up a visible kingdom. He's going to overthrow the Romans and bring in an age of peace and prosperity. Instead, Jesus tells them they don't understand how or when God is going to do it. And Jesus tells them, he answers their question in Acts chapter 1, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So now we need to talk about how this applies to us right now. 
at the time of history we're in right now. And I'd, I'd like to give you three applications, three ways to think about this. And the first application uh, is uh, to think about modern unbelief. We're all 21st century thinkers here, and you and I have absorbed modern ways of thinking, and many times we absorb them without uh, realizing how they influence us. So I think it's important to consider them. So what is the consensus of secular Western philosophy, Western thinking, about the rule and reign of Christ? The conclusion is really simple. Christ doesn't rule. This is just a fairy tale. Kings and kingdoms, they are outdated political structures. And all of this talk, it's some type of wish fulfillment or a primitive mythology that's some stubbornly survived into the modern age. So here's one way to attack it head on. And that is, let's grant the point. There is no king over the universe. Let's try it on. There is no ultimate authority. There's no authority that our pre- ultimate authority that our president or senators or governor or anyone else has to answer to. There's no ultimate law to follow, and there's no ultimate law to be broken. Then what is the essence of government? If there's no transcendent ruler or rule, then all there is is politics. It's a struggle for power. You've probably heard the phrase, might is right. It's actually the title of a short book, um, believed to be written by a guy named, an Englishman named Arthur Desmond. In it, he says, the natural world is a world of war. The natural man is a warrior. The natural law is tooth and claw. All else is error. But no one likes it said that way. Um, But ask yourself why. Why is reducing politics to raw power distasteful? Why do you feel, why do I feel, that we ought to have good government and wise rulers and just laws? So at this point, a person might double down and say, well, the reason is that humans have evolved a moral sense. Uh, Through uh, Darwinian evolution, we picked up this moral sensibility. But that can only explain why you feel there ought to be good government. It doesn't mean there actually ought to be good government. But this is a feeling that you cannot shake. You can't stop wanting this. You can't, we cannot get it out of our heads that our leaders and rulers ought to be good. And this is from all sides of the political spectrum. No matter where you stand, our leaders ought to be good. We're all looking for an amazingly wise leader. We have different visions of what that will be, but we are looking for it. So maybe this is just an evolutionary tick, or maybe this is a hint of how the universe actually is. Maybe it is true that our leaders actually ought to be good. And the reason, the only sufficient reason, is that we are made by a creator and a king who actually is good. And he's implanted in our souls a desire for himself. So that's the first application, something to think about. A second application. As believers, we eagerly desire Christ's rule and reign. But we are a bit like the people of Isaiah's day, aren't we? Uh, we're still, we're, we're waiting and we see distress and darkness. Russell Moore talks about this in the video. Uh, we see it. We're distressed about it. And we're waiting for it to come to an end. When will God move? And we're also a bit like Jesus' disciples as well. We know who the king is, but we're a bit confused about how and when this is all going to play out. The Bible tells us that if we want to know and understand the wisdom of God and the rule and reign of Christ, we need to look at the cross. Colossians says, this is where God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So to understand the wisdom of God in contrast to human wisdom and power, 
I'd like to look at a, verse, a passage from 1 Corinthians 1. This is actually a passage that Pastor Rick quoted a, week, a couple weeks ago. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You might recognize that from Isaiah we, that we read earlier. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this is how the visible rule and reign of Christ begins, by humbling himself and becoming a man, by taking our sin and being beaten and ridiculed for it. This is the wisdom of God. This is the beginning of the rule and reign of the wonderful counselor. We don't go into the forum of Rome and look for a polished orator or statesman. We go outside the city and we see an innocent man being cruelly executed by the Romans. We don't go into the temple of Jerusalem and see a richly dressed high priest, but we go outside the city and see someone being falsely accused and put to death for blasphemy. This is wisdom that's beyond us. In times past, God's rule was veiled. He, re- he revealed himself to a small nation in Palestine, to Israel, and even that was veiled through a complex sacrificial system and many other things. But the nations of the world were largely left in darkness and in ignorance but not anymore. Maybe a helpful way to think of this is to think of a sunrise. Isaiah lived something like a half an hour before the sunrise. You can imagine it. The world's in darkness, but there's a light coming. And you can see some of its effects. But God revealed to Isaiah, before anyone else could see it, what the full noonday sun would look like. He saw that someday Christ would rule over all the nations and the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah wrote. Now we, we live something like a half an hour after sunrise. The king has appeared, but we do not have the full noonday sun yet. There's still dark shadows, there's cold air, but we know it won't last long and the reason we know is we can look direct, we can see the sun We can look directly at it. The decisive event in world history has happened. We can look at the cross. And whatever that full noonday sunlight will be like, we know exactly where it will come from. It will come from the wonder of the cross. So this uh, illustration came to my mind uh, as Eddie and I, my uh, my 12-year-old son Eddie and I are playing golf. So we've been playing golf the last year and a half or so. And um, since the end of daylight savings time, we've been playing uh, the back nine at San Clemente Muni. Uh, we go there Friday morning about 6.30 a.m. And when you get there, it's still cold. It's, it's actually quite cold. Uh, it can be cold. And it's a little dark. But you're setting up at the 10th uh, the hole. You're, on the, you're in the tee box squaring up and looking down at the 10th green. And we were there a couple weeks ago and suddenly right over the green, the, on the horizon, the sun pops up. The sunrise had just happened. And in an in, just in a minute's time, you could, we could not see the, they couldn't see the flag anymore. You couldn't see the green. You couldn't see the fairway even. You just had to hit blindly into the sun. The sun was dazzlingly bright. But if you just turn and look away, look anywhere else, it's, 
It's still dim, and it's still cold. But if you look straight at it, it's blindingly bright. And in the same way, when we look at the cross, we see the wisdom of God and become blind to the allure of worldly wisdom and power. If you turn away from it, you can ignore it for now. But when you look at the cross, you see the wisdom and power of God that will rule the entire world and everything else fades. Now, this doesn't mean we disengage with the world. It means we engage with the world rightly. Whoever is ruling over us, whether it's the candidates that we thought were the best or the candidates we think are the worst, we know they are not our ultimate hope and they're not our ultimate fear. They're just men. We see them correctly. They will answer to Christ for everything they do, right or wrong. And in the end, Christ will put all things right. And Christ's rule extends to us too. We have to answer to him. And Christ has been very clear how we act towards any human government over us. Whether we live in a good democracy or a bad democracy, a monarchy, a dictatorship, Romans 13 tells us we obey our rulers, we pay our taxes. First Timothy 2 says we pray for our rulers. Jeremiah 29 tells us to work for the good of the city that we live in. We will be their best citizens, but we will never worship our rulers and we'll never be afraid of our rulers because our fear and our worship are reserved for another. We will give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And there's a third and final application for us during this Advent season. If we want to see the wonderful counselor, we can look to the manger in Bethlehem. When we look at the Christ child this Christmas, by faith, we see the king of the universe come to rescue sinners like us. We see Plato's ideal of the philosopher king, but not one we raise up ourselves, but one who is graciously given to us. We see the supernatural wisdom of God that solves our greatest problem in a way that we would have never thought of. In this promised child, we put all our hope and all our fear because only he is deserving. And we eagerly wait for the day when the victory he won on the cross will be seen by all. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We look to him for our only sure source of wisdom and salvation. All of our hope is in him. We fear only him. And this Christmas season, we rejoice in his coming and we loudly proclaim that Christ is king to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.